my second self and I. I'm Matt. The other voice you'll hear from time to time is Alex. What up? Kentucky's a place that most people don't usually associate with vampires or the occult, at least without some additional reading. Today we're keeping true to theme for June, and I've got a crazy story about some folks in the hollers of Kentucky that believe they're vampires. Well, anything can happen up in the hollers. Very true. And despite its geographical location, I don't know if this area has a lot of hollers or not, but it sure seems like it should. This whole story is one giant example of letting your imagination go too far. Very briefly, before we begin, for those of you who aren't used to the sound of my voice and my speech patterns, let me fill you in on what's about to happen. This is a comedy show, or my attempt at one. The goal of each episode is to make you laugh as hard as I can while telling you a crazy real-world story that usually revolves around true crime or something close to its orbit. There will be jokes, music, swearing. Sometimes I'm kind of loud when I get excited. Okay? Sound good? We're going to start at the beginning, or as close to it as possible, like we usually do on this show, but there's a very few dates for these things, so I've attempted to line it up in as close to sequential order as I can. My apologies in advance if I get something wrong, but if I do... These are also on YouTube, so you can let me have it over there. Alright, now that everybody's on the same page, let's witness some organized chaos in action. We talked about quite a few people on this show that didn't have it easy growing up. Rod Farrell is no exception to that rule, and his story begins in the small-ish town of Murray, Kentucky. Placed squarely in the middle of nowhere near the border of Kentucky and Tennessee, today is home to around 17,000 people, and almost the same in 1980 when Rod was born with about 14,000. Not huge, but not super small either, like good mid-sized town, small-ish. We haven't yet encountered a story quite like Rod's though. When he was born, his mother Sandra Gibson was only 16 years old. She was also married at the time to a man whose name I am not privy to, but he left shortly after Rod was born to serve in the military and never came back. It's amazing to me that a 16-year-old can get legally married at all. Although we're going to find out some more things about his mom later that kind of makes me think she might not have had the strictest definition of the word marriage. Some of the things she said kind of make me question her conception of reality. She's got quite an exotic way of approaching things. Another exotic way she used to approach things was through the medium of dancing. Flawless segue. To make ends meet, Sandra would pull shafts, I mean shifts, as an exotic dancer and sex worker. No word on if they occurred at the same time. But if you're married at 16 in Kentucky, I suppose anything's possible. She would spend about 10 years in the public housing system while figuring out how to support her baby through sex work and stripping, but that leads me to a very important question I'm sure many of you are dying to know right now. How low are the standards in Kentucky at this time that a 16-year-old can make a living as a sex worker while supporting a newborn baby? How many degenerates in this town would it take to support that for her? What kind of place would hire a 16-year-old as a dancer? That means there's enough people in this town or nearby that were horny enough, or understaffed enough, or just bored enough, let's be real, saw a sex worker, realized she was a child, and said, Ah, fuck it, she got two legs. I don't know what they would have really said, but god damn it, 1980s Kentucky, come on. I know you guys have been a real hotbed for progressive thinking, but that's too far. We have to dial back the child sex worker trade, like, all the way to zero. Negative, even. Whatever. She also had a pretty core. <laughs> god damn it. She also had a pretty coercive enthusiasm for the macabre, specifically vampires, specifically vampires from the Dungeons and Dragons canon. Oh shit, last week it was a demon, now we get vampires? Thanks. Oh don't worry Alex, those aren't actually vampires. It's more like a loose collection of ragtag dorks that rally around a common bond. 
Essentially, it boils down to them just really liking vampires and needing both an escape and something to belong to. It was just a bunch of cringy, troubled teenagers doing weird shit in the woods? Yeah, pretty much. But then much, much worse. And Sandra's love of vampires and the occult would be inherited by her son Roderick. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Did I say Roderick? I meant to say Vasago. We must pay the deepest respects for our undead overlord Vasago, a 500-year-old lord of shadow with an affinity for blood and chaos. See? For those of you who don't know, let me fill you in on just what exactly D&D Vampire is. Well, similar to regular Vampire, actually. Probably close to what you're imagining. In fact, hold on to that image, and we'll see how close it is to what I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Fellow dorks, geeks, and nerds, bear with me. We've all seen these guys. We're familiar already. But just in case you have no idea what I'm talking about. Dungeons & Dragons is a very famous tabletop role-playing game in which you, as the player, picks a character of various races and classes that provide different abilities based on what you pick. Throughout your adventure, the DM, or Dungeon Master, will dictate what types of scenarios and battles your party will take place in and what monsters you will be battling, which are, sometimes, vampires. They can turn into a medium-sized bat or a cloud of mist, they can climb otherwise difficult to climb surfaces with ease, in bat form they can fly but not speak, and they can regenerate. They are classically vampire-like in appearance, how close did you get? Blue and gold overcoat with black boots, a black cape that's red on the inside, long black hair, sharp claw-like fingernails, and extended fangs with a blood-red gemstone on brooch around their neck. We couldn't get any more vampire -y. These kids could not be any further from that, despite Rod claiming himself to be a 500-year-old Strigoi. Except Rod wasn't a 500-year-old vampire, believe it or not, I know. He was a child, and his home life was about as unstable as anything we've seen on this show, bouncing back and forth from public housing and Sandra's parents' house. Public housing may have been the less traumatic of the two options here on account of his grandfather allegedly molesting him at age 5. Court records point to it being more than an allegation, however, there were never any charges filed. What the fuck, Gramps? And if you did that to Rod, there's no telling what he may have done to Sandra, which, actually, that might explain a lot of her behavior later. I have a piece of a letter she wrote to someone later on in the story that's just jaw-droppingly perplexing. You'll see. As Rod grew older, his relationship with his mother became more and more complex and increasingly disturbing. In around 1990, Sandra's parents purchased a home in Eustis, Florida, and the family would make frequent trips there, going from state to state for housing purposes. That's an 11-hour drive. Holy shit. He was not a loner, though. In fact, he had quite a few people in his life that he would call his friends, including a girlfriend. Heather Windorf was one of these friends, and also the object of Rod's misplaced righteousness. He wanted to save her from the dragons that were her abusive parental overlords. They met while he was staying in Eustis, and she, like a lot of teenage girls, didn't want to listen to her parents about cleaning a room. An explosive firecracker of 16-year-old angst in full bloom. Get out of my room, Mom! I'm smoking cigarettes and doing vampire stuff! God! Fun fact, Rod once racked up... Sorry. Visago once ran up an $850 phone bill, making long-distance collect calls to Heather until Heather's parents put a stop to that shit. Which, of course, made Heather very angry. Jesus, you guys are so unfair! I'm just talking to my friend about vampires music! You wouldn't get it! Oh, I hate it here! I want to leave! The worst parents ever! Oh. There's also Howard Scott Anderson, whom would be recruited by Rod upon his return to Murray, and it's right about then that he starts referring to himself as Visago. Scott, who is Rod's right-hand man as they see it, came from an abusive household too, but 
Not nearly as bad as Heather's parents. No, his dad was only a violent alcoholic who raged out on his mother, like, all the time. He never did anything like going into his son's room without permission or canceling the phone service. I mean, who could ever bring themselves to be such a monster? You know what it's like to be a teenager. My life's already so hard. Having my meals cooked for me and my clothes washed. Why can't it just be free? God! Come November, after serving a little bit of time for some really fucked up shit he did in October, Visago gets a girlfriend. That horrible shit was something involving two puppies that I'm thankful my sources glossed over without any detail. I don't like animals dying in these. I've said that numerous times. But hey, um, that's also one of the serial killer triangle things. Animal abuse or torture, bedwetting, and setting fires. Free extra fact that I wasn't planning on including today. There you go. Oh man, I hope he didn't tell her what he did and she was impressed. Her name is Charity Keese. And her, along with other friend Dana Cooper, Scott, and DeSago, all wound up as a pretty tight-knit group of friends in Murray that eventually wanted to rescue Heather from her abusive parents. I said I wanted an iPhone 4, not an iPhone 3! Your worst parents ever! You're ruining my life! Go! Alright, I'll stop with the... <laughs> I'll stop with the angsty teenager voice for a while, because it is time for the first crossing over of souls into the vampiric plane of existence! Well, actually, I guess technically the first one in the group to be turned was Visago. How did he, as a 16-year-old sophomore, suddenly become a 500-year-old nightmare being? Well, to tell you that, I need to briefly introduce another definitely not real vampire, Stephen Jaden Murphy. Here's a quote from him that might help provide us a little context. He said in an interview, quote, Rod had the same views, the same principles in life. Sometimes it's kill or be killed. We learned that at a very early age as children raised in homes that were not financially sound. I feel like they also applied that sentiment to their D&D campaigns. It's kill or be killed, guys. Now who wants to be the barbarian? We can't afford to not have a sound offense. It's, it's a basic principle of any well-balanced party. Maybe that's all this is. A D&D real-life overworld LARP that went way too far because the fantasy is more desirable than reality. Roll for initiative. Wait a second. He goes on to say, to me it reflected my soul because the nighttime called to me and conveyed the power of human blood. This would literally send chills through my entire body because I finally found my spiritual haven. A soul so dark and painful. Steven is also the subject of that letter Sandra wrote that I mentioned earlier. I might as well get that nonsense out of the way here. But first, really quickly, let me set this up. This is kind of too much. This is like what you'd have your most overly dramatic character in, I don't know, a D&D campaign say. And as, as I'm reading this, I want you to imagine what, if any, real-life person you might write this to. She wrote these words in this order on purpose. Quote, I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Murray. You will then come for me and cross me over, and I will be your bride for eternity, and you my sire. Jeez. I don't even know where to start with that. I'm starting to wonder if maybe something else is going on with her that we don't know about because what the fuck, Sandra? That's just not a normal thing to write and it's especially not normal when you consider that she wrote that letter to Stephen when he was 14 years old. Visago was right around 16 when he met Stephen which would make Sandra I think right around 32 which is so gross. Ew. So how did he cross over into vampirism? What did they actually do? Yeah, let's move on from the creepy letter to a child and into 
crossing over with Jaden. His words again, quote, I had Rod meet me at the tombstone, the birthplace, when we began the ritual. We just used regular razor blades and cut the upper arm. After we cut ourselves, he would feed from my arm until his heart's content or until the bleeding stopped, and I would do the same as well. A couple of things with that, Jaden. First off, do you know what a tombstone is for? And second, you got regular ass normal razor blades that literally anybody could have and cut your own arm to turn someone into a vampire? You have to already be a vampire for that to work. Thank you. Y yes, there are other ways to become a vampire other than being bitten on the neck. Some of which include sorcery, unaliving yourself, some contagion, and weirdly enough, I'd never heard of this before, but having a cat jump over a person's corpse? Why would that turn someone into a vampire? I have no idea, but I guess you better have some cat repellent at the cemetery unless you want to turn into a vampire. Wait a minute! Oh my god, what? Shouldn't there be way more vampires then? Cats serve no other god than themselves and love jumping onto and over shit they shouldn't, so why aren't there more vampires? I call bullshit. I don't think vampires are actually real, you guys. Somebody's been lying to us. Back to reality again. I think this next line is also from Jaden, or it could be from Rod. Not totally sure, but either way, it pretty succinctly sums up what's happening in this story. Quote, In our minds, it was us against the world. In our minds. Exactly. In your minds. Not outside of your mind in the real world. And I'm not trying to talk down on anybody, I get it. Sometimes you just can't quite figure out where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to do or who you are and you need a fantasy to escape into. I do that all the time. I have this recurring fantasy where I'm just sitting on the couch for hours on end watching random YouTube stuff and it's called procrastinating and it's awesome. But then I jump back into the real world and go back to being productive and helpful after a little while because I know what's real. Or at least I'm pretty sure I know what's real. Which in and of itself is fucking great. Everybody needs an escape or an outlet. Some kind of distraction from whatever life's thrown at them lately. Fucking go for it. But this story is what happens or what could happen when you reject the shared reality that we're all in right now. You, me, the car next to you, your co-worker, the other car next to you. Okay, maybe not him. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, he should not be driving like that. What reality is he in? Please tell me that worked for at least one of you. And don't get me wrong, it's fine to fantasize and to have fantasies, perfectly healthy, normal actually. But you can't let it go so far as to lose sight of the real, actual flesh and blood world that we all live in. The one that has measurable consequences for your actions, whether you believe yourself to be justified or not. I have a question, where would a bunch of kids that think they're vampires hang out? Oh, you're gonna love this. One of the more original names you can have for a vampire hideout. Deep in the woods of Murray, Kentucky, in the lands between the lakes, lies, apart from an almost Elden Ring reference, a dilapidated old piece of shit building, this one made of concrete. The last dilapidated old piece of shit building we had was an abandoned farmhouse in the Larry Eiler episode. If you haven't listened to that, go right after this. It's nuts. The gangly group would take to calling this place the Vampire Hotel. And it was covered in spray-painted graffiti and weird sigils and symbols, and in big capital block letters above the doorway, I guess you could call it a doorway, it says, Vampire Hotel. So they spared no expense. I'm Basago, okay? I turned all of you and we're a family. I'm gonna make this place amazing, just wait, no expense is spared. He might have not said that, exactly. And what is the overall plan for the group, you might be wondering. Are we just gonna hang out and pretend for a few hours after school so mom doesn't yell at me to clean my room? It was one full plate of spaghetti I forgot about under my bed, it's not that dirty, gall! Hey, I said I wouldn't do that for a while, that was Alex. I'm not sorry either. 
Well, they eventually wanted to end up in Nolens. They wanted to start a little vampire family there. Why? Nolens has more vampires per square mile than any other city, so this decision actually makes sense. You know, they actually outnumber the people there by just a little bit at 1.5 vampires to every one person within city limits, which probably explains why the nightlife there is so active and chaotic. Another little-known fact about Nolens is that it's home to the first ever actual vampire hotel. Check out this old radio ad I found. Here at the Two Teeth Inn, we want to suck the anxiety out of your life. No more will the monotony of the daily routine interrupt your very important schedule. Conquer your hunger with a complimentary minibar that's stocked full of vodka, tomato juice, nectarines, and blood oranges to keep you healthy and full of vitamin C. Yes, we do have bats in some of our more luxurious suites. For the vagabond who fears nothing, these bats are actually quite docile and tend to just hang out and don't really do anything. And sure, there have been a few instances of a serial biter being seen in the area near the hotel, but we assure you that your stay will be filled with many moments of calming, mesmerizing bliss and joy. So come join our family of over seven locations worldwide in New Orleans, Paris, Australia, Milwaukee, Krakow, Eustis, Florida, and of course, our headquarters in beautiful, powerful Wallachia. Home to our founders, Vladrik Konstantinescu and his concubine, I mean completely willing partner and wife, Cheritonitsiu. Find your eternity at the Two Teeth Inn! That's a for sure real ad for a not made up hotel. I hope I can go one day. Get your laughs in now. This next part doesn't really have a whole lot that's funny about it. We're in Eustace, Florida now. Visago and the whole gang road tripped it down here on November 25th to pick up Heather and cross her over into the group. They were discussing the plan on how to get to New Orleans from there and Heather told Rod that she can get him into her house so she could steal her parents' car. Psst. Ha. Rod. Don't call me Rod. It's Visago. Sorry, my lord. Why don't we just take my parents' car? They're probably asleep right now. You could just steal it. Oh, nice. That's a totally righteous move. Totally resonates with what my soul was thinking. She also told him, I don't want you messing with my parents. Just leave them alone. But I don't think Rod heard that part of the request. He dropped some LSD and proceeded with Scott over to Heather's house so they could steal the car. And here's what happened inside the house. This is pretty bad stuff. Rod and Scott entered the house through the garage where Rod saw and decided to pick up a crowbar. He said he picked it up just in case to defend himself, but I'm not so sure. Inside the house, they find Mr. Windorf, Richard, sleeping on the couch. Oh, thank God. He's just asleep. She was right. I don't have to defend myself. I can just grab the keys and take the car and leave. But then he thought about it and said, you know what? Actually, just in case, Rod takes the crowbar and starts violently bashing Richard Windorf in the head and face with it while he was asleep on the couch couldn't have been minding any more of his own business, doing nothing to deserve any of this. Didn't even know this kid. 22 times. Holy shit, dude, that's brutal. Soon after, that probably made a huge ruckus, which is what alerted Mrs. Windorf. She saw what had just happened and immediately threw her freshly brewed cup of coffee right in Rod's face. Drop a punch! This only seemed to anger Visago, the vampire king, but Rod didn't immediately attack. He was mad, but he thought about it for a second. This is a really fucked up quote from Rod. Buckle up. By that time, you know, it was pretty obvious. I had blood on me and a crowbar in my hand. I was fixing to say, yeah, I want to have coffee with you, you son of a bitch and smartass. But anyway, that's when she lunged at me, because I was actually going to let her live. But after she lunged at me, I just took the bottom of the crowbar and kept stabbing it through her skull. And whenever she fell down, 
I just continually beat her until I saw brains falling on the floor, because that pissed me off. The first strike to the face was so hard that it actually severed her brain stem, killing her instantly, and then another 20 or so blows to and around her head just completely destroyed these poor people. It literally didn't do anything, what the fuck, man? He was napping on the couch and she was in the shower, which is also like everybody's two biggest home invasion nightmares. Oh, but hold on, these two aren't done being monsters yet. Rod had the crowbar, but Scott was there too, watching this whole thing play out. Then they decide to do this, here's another Rod quote. I really have no idea where the notion came from, but Scott and I just decided to kill them, so that's what we did. And in a childish manner, Scott and I ambitiously danced around his body before he was dead. Ugh. That's definitely not how anybody should go out. Two dipshit wannabe vampire posers break into your house while you're literally just existing comfortably, murders you and your spouse, then dances around your corpse before robbing you and stealing your car to drive to Louisiana to continue pretending to be dipshit wannabe vampire posers? It bears repeating. What the shit? The parents are quickly discovered just a couple hours later after Heather's sister Jennifer gets home from work. Imagine coming home from a long day at work. You're tired, probably hungry, and you just want to go eat and go to bed, but instead of that, you walk in the door to... You know what? Never mind. Actually, don't imagine that. Roll a one when you try to imagine that. It's, it's not good. So where do we go from here? What's the jump-off point? What's next? Amazingly, they made it all the way to Baton Rouge, an almost 10-hour drive. And on November 27th, arrest warrants were issued for all of them. The next day, on November 28th, was when they were all arrested. It's also about then that I think Heather finds out what actually happened. Oh, what? Why are we getting pulled over? What happened? Visago, did something happen? What's happening? Tell me! What did you do? Rod didn't tell her anything about the murders and somehow concealed all the blood I'm sure he and Scott were soaked in for three days while trying to establish a vampire base camp. At the trial, Rod makes a complete spectacle of himself, sticking his tongue out and making weird statements like that he was actually going to, quote, ditch being a vampire. I thought you were 500 years old and an immortal. You can just ditch that and give it up? Huh? Okay. This is my favorite thing Rod says. He tried, <laughs> he tried to claim that he was being framed. By who? Not another person in the group. Not another kid from somewhere else. No! An entirely different but still ragtag group of teenagers that also happened to call themselves vampires framed him for double homicide. Rod, no! There's no fucking way that there's two different vampire groups operating at the same time in the same area. Or maybe he's confusing his most recent D&D campaign with what's happening in the real world again. Maybe in the campaign, his party's being extorted by some shifty-eyed vampire. You must pay me 1,000 gold to cross the bridge, but I understand your position, and I'll sweeten the deal and throw in this scroll of healing. I have to make a living too, but the least I can do is make it worth your while. Well, what does the scroll do? Why shouldn't we just kill you instead? Sure, you could kill me, but then how will you ward off status effects? I'm a wizard, I can just cast spell. Oh, that's it, I'm flame striking this mother- Wait, wait, I see your point, wait. But with this scroll, you won't even have to use your own spells leaving you free from worry forever, from being blinded, charmed, deafened, frightened, grappled, incapacitated, invisible, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, prone, restrained, stunned, unconscious, or even exhausted, without even having to use your own mana. Very well. We accept. Ah, uh, a wise purchase. See, I knew I saw something worthwhile in your party. <laughs> Take care now. And the party successfully crosses the bridge and went along. You know what? 
I could actually use the XP. Dude! Alex, what the hell, man? He was cool! What? I leveled up. Trial starts for Rod on February 5th, 1998. He sort of caught everybody off guard because he actually pleaded guilty. His lawyers made a statement after saying, quote, he accepts responsibility and wants to live. Which is kind of unfortunate for him because a few weeks later he is actually sentenced to death, making him the youngest ever person to be placed on death row. For as heinous of a crime as he committed, we should definitely not be putting children on death row. He was 16 at the time of the murder and sentencing. Judge has a good line here. He says, quote, I think you're a disturbed young man. I think your family failed you, and I think society failed you. Which is kind of true. His mom, being how she is, didn't do him any favors, and the rest of his immediate family doesn't seem to help either. I mean, who knows what his grandfather did to his mother while she was a child, and he did that to Rod, maybe, it when he was five, so who knows? Anything could be possible. And that really sucks. That's a shitty situation for anybody to be forced into, and I do feel kind of bad for them for that part. Nobody should ever have to be put through something like that. But when you get to the point of hurting another person or writing lewd letters to 14-year-old boys when you're 32, you've taken it too far and need some extra help or guidance or something. But, you know, putting other people down is not the answer. So, so what happened to everybody else? Scott pled guilty in April and he was sentenced to two life sentences. Charity was given 10 years. Dana was given 17 years for some reason. Not sure why there. Maybe she interfered or lied about something in the investigation, not entirely sure. Both girls took a plea deal for reduced sentences, so not why. Not sure why there's a difference in sentencing there. In 2000, Florida reverses its decision to kill Rod, commuting his sentence to life in prison, stating that a defendant must be at least 17 when they commit a crime to be eligible for execution, which is still a fucking child! Holy shit, Florida. Hey, how young is too young to legally murder? Can we do 16? No? Alright, well, how about, how about 17? You're okay with 17. 16, no, but 17, yes. Okay, just making sure we's on the same page. 17 years old is still a child. Think about you from 16 to 17. It's not that different. Literally one number. You still have the same thoughts and habits and patterns at 17 as you do at 16. The only thing that changes from 16 to 17 is your clothes and teachers. That's it. If there's any 17-year-olds listening to this, yes, you, directly you. You're basically legally an infant until you turn 18, which is still not that much different from 17, except you suddenly have rights and can vote and make choices, but your brain is still basically the same brain as from, fucking never mind, let's just move. I'll never get out of this loop if I don't keep going. My point is, we shouldn't be executing children, all right? There, I said it. Rod also tried to have his life sentence reduced in 2020, but another judge told him to fuck right off and that Rod is, quote, irreparably corrupt. Yeah, yeah. So you can just go ahead and stay put. We, we like you where we can keep an eye on you. So he isn't going anywhere, but Scott might get out of prison soon. He had his sentence reduced to 40 years in December of 2018, so he'll be out in around 2032, age of 51, plenty spry. And finally, what about Heather? She was acquitted of all charges, as she was in another place with two different people at the time of the murder, and she is currently married and studying art somewhere in North Carolina. Don't know, seems to be kind of just doing her own thing over there. Rod will likely spend the rest of his life at his new home, the Tomoka Correctional Institute. I don't think he's getting back out. 
The ladies of the group are all out of prison and otherwise totally fine and seemingly well-adjusted, but why did all this happen? This one kind of made me think about the nature versus nurture argument again, so I wanted to take a brief look into that before we go. Well, what is the nature versus nurture argument? Matt, what the fuck are you talking about? Explain it to me! Calm down, I'm getting there. Alright. In case you forgot or you're new here, I'm not a psychologist or a licensed professional, I just read a lot. Let's say you have a case like today. Was Rod genetically predisposed to act in a certain way, or are his actions learned behavior through his environment? If a person abuses their spouse, were they born violent, or did they learn that behavior from someone else in their life? Terms nature versus nurture, along with eugenics, come from a psychologist named Francis Galton, who believed intelligence is derived from genetics. He even encouraged smart people to have babies with other smart people, while discouraging the less intelligent from doing so been pretty hotly debated basically since its inception with quite a few people arguing in favor of either side. Either argument has merits in both. There have been numerous studies done on childhood development such as the Bobo doll test which demonstrated children can learn aggression from observing other people beat the shit out of a blow-up doll. And what about a person's personality? The thing that makes you you? Is that inherited or developed based on your surroundings? Again, seems to be kind of split. Some believe it's a biological factor Others believe it stems from interacting with your environment. As with many things, it's hardly ever as black and white or as neatly packaged as we'd like it to be. I tend to lie somewhere in the middle on things like this, and with Rod it's no different. I think through an unfortunate combination of his surroundings growing up and whatever things he either inherited from his mom or saw her doing ultimately molded him into who we saw in this story today. I don't think it was in anybody's nature in the family to nurture anyone but themselves and their own desires. The universe for them is literally only skin deep. So was Rod doomed from the start? Was it genetic predisposition or would a change in environment have helped his behavior? Maybe kind of both. There's been research done on people who have perfect pitch, I wish I did, that think it might be caused by a gene, but it still requires some degree of musical training in order for it to manifest itself. Or if a child inherits the genes for height but grows up undernourished, they might never get a chance to actually grow tall like they might in a healthier environment. Whatever the case, Rod, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord of Shadow and Night Visago is probably never getting out of prison, and I'm probably never going to forget reading about this story, but that's all I have to tell you about this wacky-ass Kentucky vampire cult. There you go, everybody. Hopefully you all enjoyed what it is I'm trying to do here. If you do, maybe leave me a review on iTunes or a comment on the YouTube channel for this. And I don't normally have anybody else helping me put these together, but this week I was blessed with a bitchin' piece of music a close friend of mine put together. That was the awesome keyboard stuff you heard in the two teeth in bit, so thank you, homie, for that. And if you're listening, uh, I'll definitely find some other places to use that in. It's fucking dope. As for the rest of you... Go forth and do the things you know to do that will help me in some way. Review, tell a friend, share this episode somewhere if you liked it, all that stuff. Next week, I'll have another twisted tale to tell you. And until then, have a good week, everybody. Stay, Stay kind. kind.